So I'm your host, Ed Meisigland. I teach business owners how to build value and identify and remove risks in their business so that one day they can sell their business at maximum value when they want, how they want, and to whom they want. Today, 80% of businesses don't sell. To be a part of the 20% that do, and at maximum value, you'll need a successful strategy. Welcome to the Defenders of Business Value podcast, where we interview today's top professional advisors who help business owners create, preserve, and most importantly, transfer value. If you want actionable tips that will increase your business value, stay tuned. The podcast starts now. I can't tell you what unbelievable Christmas present this is for me is to have Annie Duke on today's show. So welcome to the show, Annie. Thank you for having me. I'm excited to be here in the middle of a big snowstorm. Where are you at? I'm I'm in the Philadelphia area. Yes, you do. You've got a good one coming. So the reason I wanted you on and to, to talk about business owners and business owners are faced with a real enormous task of trying to create a liquidity event where they are selling their hard earned business. You know, it could be, you know, multi-generational and they are trying to sell to someone else or they've been approached by a buyer. So that's where you come in. I've always wanted to have you on and I've been a fan of Thinking in Bets since it came out. And so you have a new book. So why don't we start with the new book, How to Decide Simple Tools for Making Better Choices. So how does that differ than thinking in bets? Okay, so yeah, so thinking in bets, I kind of think about as very much of a why book. Uh, And the why is why should you care about uncertainty in your decision making and trying to figure out why things turn out the way they do? So there's two forms of uncertainty, luck and hidden information. And I, I, you know, particularly I have a lot of focus on, on luck in that book in the in the sense that you can do everything right and get a bad result. You can do everything wrong and you can get a good result. And this really frustrates our ability to learn from our decision making in the past, to figure out what outcomes mean, to become better decision makers going forward. And I'm kind of talking broadly about why you really need to embrace uncertainty as part of the process of decision making. Now, in interacting with people who read that book, and I've had very grateful for being able to interact with so many different readers. What I found, just sort of a common thing that I found was that they wanted a how, right? Okay, yeah. so there's luck in imperfect information when I when I make my decision. So how do I make a great decision? And I just felt like I had heard that from enough people that I should try to step up to the task of, of really trying to lay out what does a good decision process look like? What are the tools you could use in order to do that? And one thing that came out of that process that was really fun was that while I feel like thinking in bets was more focused on luck, how to decide is more focused on hidden information. And that's for a really simple accepting it. Whereas, but the hidden, the imperfect information problem you can do a lot about. That is the thing that you can control, that you do have some control over. And so this is really focused on how do you improve the quality of the information that goes into the decision process in a large part. I got it. So I guess, how do you define decision-making skills? You know, you talk about the the difference between thinking and outcome. How do we reconcile that? So what we want to think about when we're thinking about a really good decision process, this is has to do with either you know, anything like what's the skill, you know, what, what are the skills that we have? What are the tools that we're using? What's the process that we're using that we always want to think about a process, which I can repeat that 
will reliably get me the same outcome or something similar on a sort of probabilistically that I could explain to somebody else so, okay. such that they could also do the thing that I'm doing and produce something similar in terms of the result. So just like as an example, your gut is not a good decision tool. Honing your gut is not a particularly useful decision skill because if you think about it, uh, your gut is going to produce a lot of different results depending, you know, it's like, you don't really know why your gut is doing what it is. I certainly can't, can't teach it to somebody else. If I say, Oh, I go with my gut. It's like, how am I supposed to teach somebody else to make decisions that are of the quality that I make? I can't, I can't, I'm not going to reliably get the same result. So uh, let's think about like, if I want to build a bureau, like what's a good process for building a bureau? I take out a bunch of tools and I can take a screwdriver out and I could say, Ed, this is a screwdriver. I'm going to now show you how you use it. And I can do that reliably and I can get you to do the same thing. Now, why is that really important? Because if we're going to think about how do we actually sort of look back on our decisions and figure out if we made a good decision or a bad decision, it requires that we actually be able to examine it. So when you say, oh, I made a decision with my gut, I can't go back and sort of figure out what your process was. So I'm probably, what am I going to have besides the outcome of the result, which is an unreliable signal for decision quality. Because last time I checked, you can go through a red light and not get in an accident and you can go through a green light and you can get in one. So I don't want to just take like, oh, you got in an accident is the only cue. But if you can't tell me anything about your driving, you can't tell me, did you go through a red light or a green light? It's going to be hard for me to know. We want to make sure that we're doing things that are more screwdriver-like where I can look back and I could say, well, this bureau fell apart when you were putting the screw in, what tool did you use? And you can say, I used a screwdriver and I can say, show me how you used it. And I can see if you used it well, or you can say, well, I used a hammer and I'll go, well, there's the problem. Let's fix that. You shouldn't use a hammer for that situation. So I think that's how we sort of get that separation between the two so that we can look back and say, okay, now I can actually, we can talk about whether that decision was good or not. I got it. And then herein lies where the problem is that we have no experience in the event that's getting ready to occur. We haven't practiced. You know, we may hear who sold what for how much. We may hear industry information, but the business owner now has to to take that next step and try to make the best decision, even though they haven't practiced, uh, even routinely, on the the sales process skills. So. And I don't know where the question is in there, but I know it, that's the challenge that the business owner is facing is I've never done this. How am I supposed to make the best decision for my family? Because 80% of businesses, well, 70 to 80% of businesses don't sell. If I have a buyer, I really need to capitalize on it. Or if I'm going to go through the sale process, I really have to make sure that I know exactly what I'm getting myself into because I'm I may only get one shot. There's a lot to sort of break apart there. So let me just start with the, you don't know anything about the situation part. And I'm just going to challenge that a little bit. So when we think about uh, this informational problem that we have, we sort of fall into two categories on this. Well, on the one hand, we may be overconfident and think we know way more than we do. On the other hand, we may think that 
we know absolutely nothing. So this, so that's where we tend to fall. And we can sort of, sort of feel like when, when we sort of get a past the threshold, we'll start thinking we know everything. But when we can sort of feel that this is a new situation and we haven't encountered it before, we'll really believe that we know nothing. So the first thing I want to challenge the listeners to is to not accept that you know nothing because there's almost nothing that you know literally nothing about. And as we're trying to make good decisions, what we need to realize is that every decision is going to contain some sort of guessing because we aren't omniscient. We don't have a time machine to know how the future is going to turn out. And we don't have all the information that we need in order to make a perfect decision. This is the problem. We're not time travelers and we're not omniscient. So it behooves you to understand nothing is ever totally a guess. It's always an educated guess. And how much educated can you get into the guess? I'll give you an example. We're obviously not in the room together. It's coronavirus. I would like to ask you how much the desk weighs that my computer is sitting on. Give me a guess. 300 pounds. Okay. What's the lowest amount you think it could weigh this desk? Uh, 100 and a half. Okay. Oh, yeah. 100, 100 and a half. All right. Okay. What's the highest amount you think it could weigh? Yeah. Five, 600 pounds. Okay. So why didn't you guess 10,000 pounds? Because it's not likely that wherever you're at can hold a 10,000 pound desk. Yeah. Cause like, you know, a lot about desks, you know, a lot about what they're made of, you know, a lot about what floors can hold up that kind sure. of thing. Right. How come you didn't guess three pounds? Uh, it was not likely that, that you would be able to you know, sit behind something that weighed three pounds with your computer and such. That's right. It. So you've never seen this desk. So you could have said, I don't know. You're asking me about something that I've never seen. How could I possibly give you a guess? But when I asked you, it turned out that you could, you actually narrowed it down quite well. Why? Because you thought about, well, what do I know about desks? What do I know about houses? What do I know about computers? What do I know about the floor? So, so you can always sort of figure out what are the things that relate to the thing I'm about to do that would inform this decision and not right. accept that I don't know ever, anything, but actually say, where is the educated in this guess? And you're going to get it from two places. One is, what you know about it already. But the other is, and it was a clue in what you said, because at some point you asked me, what size is it? And I noticed I didn't answer, but it tells you what information could I go find out? So, you know, I can find out by saying, oh, it's this size. Sure. And then that's going to help you to narrow it down. You could ask me what it's made of, right? So in demanding of yourself to put the educated in the guess, it tells you, let me look at what I do know. And also let me look what I can find out. So what is that going to cause you to do? It's going to cause you to look at what do these businesses sell for in general? For example, I could go find that out. You know, how should I price this properly? You could uh, talk to trusted advisors about what has worked for them in this situation or what you, what they feel would be appropriate to sell something for, for example. And this helps you to build information. What strategies would you use? You could go take a negotiating course. Now you start to bring the educated into what you're doing and so instead of accepting this is the first time, so I know nothing. I get it. A lot of the, the challenge that the business owner faces is emotional. It's an irrational decision. Like the correlation of, of what they need to retire and their business value, there is no correlation. And yet there is an emotional component on, you know, my identity is tied to the business. And the other component is you don't know what I sacrificed to get here. How am I to convince you? How are we to connect those two dots, you as the buyer, me as the seller. And because we're, we're kind of adversarial, I mean, we're, we're both posturing to, to get the best deal. How do we do that? 
So I think this is what this is actually really deep. So this is a topic that I've been thinking a lot about recently, which is quitting decisions, right? When when do we quit things? And that's what selling is. It's a form of quitting, right? You're selling the business and you're going to cease to operate it. And what happens is it turns out that human beings are pretty bad at these types of decisions. And the reason is that one of the main reasons is that we don't think about the decision as a new decision. We think about all the things that have led up to that decision. So there's a big fallacy, which is called the sunk cost fallacy, which is kind of part of what you just pointed out. Well, I've put all this stuff into the business, right? So we start to take into account like our time or our resources, or one of the things that we really like to protect is our identity, right? So um, we don't want to give up our identity. And if we're going to do that, we we sort of feel like there should be a premium put on, on the business. There's something called the endowment effect where we start, where we feel ownership of our ideas and our beliefs and our possessions. And obviously this is a case where you own the business. A good example of that would be if I, I can figure out separately that, that people value a visor and a mug the same, let's say they, they'd say they would pay 250 for each of those items. If you walk into the room and I hand you a visor as sort of a prize for participation, and I now say, what would you sell this visor for that I've given you? You'll say $5, even though the fair market value is 250 So we're battling a whole bunch of things that are going to make us tend to probably add some things into the price that that maybe shouldn't belong in there. So one of the strategies is to figure out, first of all, in advance, if you were the buyer, what would you pay for it? Because that's how you have to approach that decision, right? Which is, I have to imagine that I did not build this business because whatever my blood, sweat and tears are, I already spent those. Right. So now I have to think about the business as an asset. And so you need to go through the mental exercise of saying, if I were to look at this balance sheet, if I were to think about this business and I was a buyer, in other words, I've sold my business and I'm looking for something to buy, what would I price it at? This is a way for you to get outside of some of these things is to approach it as if you were making the decision yourself. So that's that's number one. That's going to get you to a better place in terms of what you would willing be willing to buy it for, uh, to sell it for. Then what you have to do is prior to getting into the negotiation, you have to set some rules for yourself. This is the lowest amount I would be willing to sell this for. What is my opening offer going to be? How long are we going to negotiate before I'm willing to go down on that? You can actually say, what are the signals that this buyer would be giving me that would suggest that I might actually give on price a little bit, do all of that work in advance and try to do as little as possible on the fly. And in fact, if you feel like too much is happening on the fly, you should say, can we stop and start again tomorrow? Because I have some things I need to think about. So you want to do as little in the moment as you possibly can, because we want to be stepping away from our emotions when we're in those situations. It's particularly good with this kind of thing as you're thinking about what are the worst terms I'd be willing to accept What are the terms that I'd really be super happy with and what would be beyond my wildest dreams? What am I willing to give on? What am I not willing to give on? That you actually declare that to other people and you you have other people hold you accountable to that. One of my partners, his name's Larry Metzing. He's a big poker fan of yours and super excited that I'm that I'm talking to you. And one of the things that he, one of his negotiating techniques is that he does ask the seller, given the circumstances, would you buy your business? under these circumstances. And most of the time it's like, hell no, I'm not going to buy. There's no way. And our rebuttal is, well, 
then why would you think any buyer is going to? But right. the funny thing is, it doesn't slow them down. It, there's still that an emotional connection that I can't divest myself. We'll find some poor guy that will pay for it. I mean, any any thoughts on how to work fix that? Again, so part of this is the advanced work, right? Part of this is this idea of like thinking about what if I were the buyer, would I be willing to do this? You can also reverse that, by the way. And when you're in a tough negotiation with someone, you could say, would you be willing to sell this business for what you're offering? Right. So you can also flip that as well, which is nice. But another thing that you can do is what's called a pre-mortem. And this can be really helpful, which is to say, let me imagine that it's a year from now and I still have not sold this business. What do I think happened? Why did that occur? And it's really helpful to get some trusted advisors to fill some of that out. Have them do that separately. Don't talk at the same time because you'll influence each other. But let's say that you're, you're a trusted advisor for me. I say to you, I want to sell this business. I would like to sell it within the space of 12 months. Could you do me a favor and go off on your own and just imagine it's 12 months from now and that I failed to sell the business? Could you please write down the reasons why and what your rationale is for that? And I'm going to do the same. And then we're going to come together and talk about it. And we're going to see, oh, we both agree that this is going to be a problem. Ed, you have something very unique in here. So you might point out, for example, that I kept thinking there would be a better buyer in the future. And that I didn't take an offer that was sitting right in front of me. Uh, That was perfectly good because I, you know, whatever, you're going to bring this up. And now we're going to have a discussion about it. And this is also going to help me to realize a little bit more in the long term. Because generally what happens to us is that we have these sort of death by a thousand cuts problems, right? Which is in the moment when someone is not quite giving us the terms that are ideal for us, we'll say, I'm not going to deal with you because I think there's going to be another buyer in the future. But that buyer is giving you signal about what your business might be worth. Now, they could it could be that they're too low, but it also could be that they're too high. Right. And we don't know. So you have to imagine what's the probability that there's going to be another buyer coming along. At some point, you're constantly saying, no, someone will come along and pay my price. There's enough signal in the world to tell you that that's not true. And certainly by the time that 12 months have passed, we think about that as a house selling experiment, right? If I put it on the market and 12 months have passed and I haven't sold it, I'm priced too high. So I either decide I'm going to wait until the market catches up with me or I've got to change my price. And those are my two choices. Now, the problem is that when we're trying to do that sort of in this forward way, it's the first month and then it's the second month and then it's the third month. And at each month, I'm like, no, there's going to be a buyer the next month. It becomes very hard to sort of get out of that loop. But instead I say, it's a year from now, I haven't sold my house. Why do I think that happened? Now I can start to say, well, I didn't lower the price enough. I didn't do it quickly enough. Maybe I didn't do some renovations. That would be like, I didn't have my books in order when I was trying to sell for a business. And so you figure out what all of those things are. And then you can set in motion some rules, which is I'm going to go for pie in the sky in the first couple of months. But if I don't have a buyer within eight weeks, then I'm committing to lower the price. Now, are you going to do it 100% of the time? Absolutely not. Not everybody's going to be able to stick to this stuff, but it's going to increase the probability that you do. And all those little increases in the probability that you actually follow through or increase the chances that you're going to get to your goal. I got it. The second thing you, you brought up was speed of decisions. The buyer wants a quick decision because, you know, from a negotiating position, it puts the the seller on 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 his or her heels and maybe we'll make an error. Do you have any any thoughts on how I can reduce the cadence 
that I, as the seller, have the position. And you you alluded to it earlier where you said, you know what, let's take a break and we'll reconvene. A lot of sellers are bullied into, I have to make this decision or I'm going to lose this buyer. How do we do this if I do, if that's not an option? Basically, in advance of this happening, it's very important to realize that, that that's probably not going to happen. If you actually have terms that you both agree on, waiting until the next morning is not going to call the, cause the buyer to go away. Right. Now, if you repeatedly do that, it will, right? So what you want to kind of try to, again, figure out in advance is what's a reasonable amount of time within which I, I think there's, uh, that this buyer is not going to go away. So right. let's say, you know, it's two weeks or something, right? Then when you feel yourself in those moments where you want to take a break to be able to go and think about it, as long as you're in that time frame, just say, you know, I want to take a break. And if they say, I demand an answer now, then you say, okay, I still want to take a break. <laughs> right, right. Well, and that's and that's one of the things that we tend to do is if it's a real buyer, they're not going anywhere. Right. Like, how, that's my question for you. Like, how often have they actually gone away if they're serious. And I know it feels really bad in the moment because it feels very, very high stakes. But I can tell you as a poker player that that's just such a huge bluff. And by the way, just go watch Shark Tank. You'll see times when the person says, if you listen to another deal, I'm going to be out. And in those cases, um, they actually are out. And what that means generally is that they were sort of iffy on the deal. And if they took their crazy bad price, they would have gone with it. But if they don't, they don't really care. But when they, when those sharks really care about the deal and they make that ultimatum and some other shark talk starts talking, they never pull out. Not when they want it. Yeah, that's right. So yeah, if someone's sort of like, I'm going to take a shot at the deal with some bad terms. And if they take it, that's great. If they don't, I don't really care. Then yeah, you know, if if you, when they give you that ultimatum, you say, no, maybe they go away. But that that's probably a good signal that you weren't getting a fair shake. Everybody strives for win-win. There's always the feeling I'm getting outdone by the other party. How do I avoid that? You know, it, after the fact, it's it's just like, did I get the best deal? And I just don't know whether or not I did. So it de- I think it depends a little bit on how you define the best deal. Right. No, I get it. Because this is this is what I'll tell you. The answer is pretty much always no. Because the best deal that you could get, the buyer is not going to take. Oh. Okay. So there's always some compromise. Oh, makes total sense. <laughs> right. Like the best deal you get, you're not going to find a buyer for. So you're probably going to be a little bit below that. And you're trying to find the sweet spot between what would the buyer be willing to buy my business at and what would I be willing to sell it at? And hopefully you can sell it for the most amount that the buyer would be willing to to buy it for. But the thing is, you're not going to know. What you kind of have to realize is, look, you don't get to run it like uh, 10,000 coin flips where, where you get to redo the negotiation 10,000 times. You're only going to do this negotiation once. And so what you have to do instead and, uh, of focusing on, did I get the best deal, is you have to set that, those boundaries for yourself, right? What's the worst deal I'd be willing to take and what's my ideal point, right? Yeah. So ideally, this is what I would get in a pinch, This is what I'd be willing to sell it for. That would be your lowest amount. And then figure out where you're going to start the negotiation. How far off of what I'd ideally like to get am I going to start? Because you're obviously going to start higher than that. And then that's where you have to to be satisfied. Because you're not going to know outside of breaking the deal 
if you break the deal, you know, you went too far, but when, whenever you don't break the deal, it's hard to know, was there more room? I don't know because you didn't break the deal. You know, I like to compare it to when people turn back climbing Everest, do you know if they would have died? I don't know. Should they have gone to the top? Hard to say. I know if they go to the top and they die, I've got an answer there. And I think about (laughs) deal breaking here. So, so assuming you haven't broken the deal, you're not going to know. So instead focus on what is my goal price and what is my absolute basement price? And given my goal price, how far above my goal price do I think that I should start? And it should be more, it should be much more than you think the person should be willing to accept. And then as long as you do that process correctly, you have to have no regrets because you have to just like, you don't know really what life was like in 1600 and you're never going to know except it. So, so that's kind of where I would come at is that it should be about the goal of getting as close. Well, you, we want to get, if you can get above what your goal price is, you should be happy, even if there was more room at the top. One of the big challenges that that we face along with that is as professional advisors, and you come alongside the business owner, and and even though you're a trusted advisor, in the back of the seller's mind, it's like you got some skin in the game. You know, are you really working in for my best interest or for your best interest, or where do our collective best interests intersect? Well, I mean, one, how- one thing I would suggest, by the way, like if, if there is there are some strategies for getting some more certainty around this, I will say. Okay. Um, so one of them would be if you're really early in the process, at which point you could be confident that there would be more buyers, particularly uh, this would be particularly true if it's early and you think that even if the person walks away from the table, you can bring them back to the table. I would purposely break the deal. In other words, I would try to find what's that number that does actually break the deal and they walk away from. Yeah. Um, but you want to do that when you're when you're very early because yeah. you, you want to get that information early, right? You don't want to get it by accident. So do it on purpose. Get it early. In particular, try to identify somebody where if the deal breaks and they walk away, you can come back to them in a couple of weeks and say, you know what? I've been rethinking. I think yeah. I would go below that. So you could actually go get that information, assuming that you can bring the stakes down a little bit. And the two ways to bring the stakes down, like I said, are do it very early in your process uh, and with someone who you think you could probably get back to the table, even if you break the deal. The the funny thing is that, you know, the same partner I was telling you about, he he does the same thing. He says it every time. If the deal doesn't fall apart two or three times, I haven't made my money. And it's true. And that's uh, along the same lines of what you're saying is is stress testing the deal. It falls apart, you put it back together. You know, and part of that has to do with your risk tolerance, right? So you want to think about like things like uh, how badly do I need the money, <laughs> Right. right. Like really bad. <laughs> you need the money really badly. You might not want to break the deal. Right. So then you're going to accept that you may come below. You may leave some money on the table, but you're making a trade off that you're at least being deliberate about. One of the things, and I know we're bumping up on time. So I, I, I wanted to ask this. So you have an example where you said uh, you're likely to be happier if you only lost a hundred dollars versus the outcome where you only won a hundred dollars. Can you explain that? I've always wanted to know, explain how that works. Why, why is so that, that? Yeah. So this is path dependent. So actually, I, can, I mean, I can give you an example from business, but let me give you the, the example from gaming first. If I walk into a casino and I start off really well and I'm winning a hundred thousand uh, dollars and then things start to go really badly and I end up only winning a hundred. Right. I, I think everybody can do this thought experiment. I was winning a thousand dollars a half a half an hour ago and now I'm winning a hundred dollars like you're really depressed and you go back to your hotel room and you're super sad. But if I come in and I lose a thousand dollars right away and then I win back all but a hundred, 
So I'm still losing a hundred. It's like drinks on me. Right. Now, obviously that's weird, right? Because right. in one case I won a hundred and I'm sad. In one case I lost a hundred and I'm, and I'm happy. So you want to think about that in terms of the way that you're viewing the sale price of your business. Like, so you can imagine if you're marking the business from some sort of paper value on paper that was at the high, you know, and then there's an economic downturn, you're going to be pretty sad, even if you're selling that business at quite a bit of profit. Why? Because you're kind of marking against the highest point that it was, whereas let's say you're just coming out of 2009 and you find a buyer and you could even be selling that business at a loss, but it's so much higher than what that recent low was. You'll be happy about it. Now, we'd like to actually view it in the way that we should view it, right? Which is not against whatever the path was, but against what the present value today is. And then on top of that, what will happen is you'll start to price for that, right? So when there was a recent down, like when you're coming off 2009, you might make the accident of selling the business too low because you're just so happy that it's higher than what it was six months ago. Uh, And you don't want to make that mistake that the value might actually be higher than what you're negotiating for, but you're willing to accept much less because in comparison to what it was six months ago, it feels so good. You do not want to make that mistake, nor do you want to make the mistake that just because it happened to be the economy was much better and the business was priced much more highly last year, that you're unwilling to sell for what value is today because, because you feel so sad, even when it's at a profit to you, because you feel so sad in comparison. So we really want to think about what is the asset value today? And let me try to ignore the path that got me here, because that can cause me to either sell too low or insist on selling too high, which is going to break every deal I come across. My last question has to do with the irrational parties involved. I can provide all kinds of empirical evidence. I can coach. I can show how this process works. I can show how buyers are going to think about their business. But there's still a level of irrationalness to the sale process. And that's okay. I mean, the question becomes, is there a tripwire to know when you're being irrational? You know, because I, when I say it, I'm just trying to get a deal done. When the buyer's saying it, they're just trying to get the better of me. If I'm a seller and I'm, I'm kind of being introspective here, how do I know that everybody's hoping for my good? This is a good thing. I'm not being irrational. Is there a tripwire that, that you can say, you know, if you feel like this, this is probably the, a good, the, the, I'll reformulate the question. Is there a tripwire that the business owner can feel that they are, you know, I'm not making an irrational decision. I've evaluated all the information and this is the path I should go. Yeah, so there's there's a few things. One, one is, again, do that advance work, right? Because uh, you're going to be more rational in advance of the decision that you will, than you will be in the middle of the decision. So think about what are the terms that I want, that I'm willing to give on? Yeah. What are the terms to stand firm on? Uh, for any of those terms, figure out what the lower bound and the upper bound is for those, for what you would accept on those, those okay. items. And really do advance work because that's really, really, really going to be helpful. Okay. That's number one. Number two is trusted advisors. So present the facts, not your opinions. So you don't want to go to someone and say, uh, here are the facts of the matter. Here's what they offered me. I think it's an amazing deal. What do you think? What you want to say is here are the facts of the matter. Here's what they offered me. What do you think I should do? Right. And just leave your own opinion out of it. That's going to give you the most sort of objective view of your own opinion. That's number two It's to get to other people. Number three, and this is really important, is it's not just important to think about the work in advance, 
and sort of think about what would I accept in the future. But when you're making the decision to say, it's a year from now, and I'm really, really happy about this decision. Why do I think that is? It's a year from now, and I'm really unhappy about this decision. Why do I think that is? And that allows, in some sense, you to, to step into that advisor role. Because you sort of get separated from the the decision and you're actually living the, boy, I have a lot of regrets a year from now. Why do I think that is? Boy, I'm so happy about it. Why do I think that is? And you can look at that and say, well, what do I think the chances are that the world's going to unfold that way? Like, for example, it could be the economy boomed and in six months it turned out that I could uh, sell this business for much more than I thought I could. That might be one reason why you might be unhappy about it. Then you can actually explore that and say, what are the chances that that's going to happen? Do I think it's worthwhile to wait a minute here? Uh, do I think this buyer will still be here in six months? What are the risks? What are the chances I think it's going to go down? And all of those things, when you start to do that time traveling and start to dig into those reasons, just get you into more rational parts of your brain. And it's just going to make you much much less likely to make those irrational decisions. So a lot of the irrationalities come from making the decision in the moment. So you notice what I'm trying to do is get you out of that, either through advanced work, doing work where you sort of project yourself into the future and you look back on it, or getting other people to look in on your decision. And all of those help you to get away from that sort of gravity well that we get pulled down into when we're in the middle of it. Last thing, where can we find Andy Duke? And I know the book's out. I'll have uh, I'll have uh, links in the show notes, but uh, where can we find Andy Duke? Thanks. If you go to andyduke.com, that's my website, you'll be able to see lots of podcasts that I've done or video of me ta- you know, giving talks. Uh, there's also a contact form on there, and I really love to hear from readers. Conversations with readers really help to inform my thinking, so I appreciate it. I'm not perfect at responding to people, but I try. Then also on Twitter, you can get me at, at Annie Duke. And that's where you see like the real me. So um, <laughs> got it. Yeah. Like I, you know, I'll put a picture of my cat under a Christmas tree and then also tweet out some really interesting scientific article. So yeah, so both of those places, and please feel free to use that contact form. I really do love hearing from people. Will do. I'll I'll make sure that it's in the show notes. Well, Annie Duke, oh my gosh, thank you for this early Christmas present. So I I had such a wonderful time talking to you. Have a happy holiday. Thanks so much. Have a happy holiday. See ya. Bye-bye. This was another episode of the Defenders of Business Value podcast. For more episodes packed with strategies to increase the value of your business, visit DefendersOfBusinessValue.com for show notes, transcripts, and free tools to start you on your journey. Subscribe now so you don't miss any future episodes.